Good evening. Counted a privilege to be here. Looking forward to the service here. Thank you, Daniel, for the songs and Dave for the um, words of encouragement there. Um, yeah, it's just a blessing to be together like this and be able to do things like this in a pl- place in a way that leads, um, points us to Christ and his crucifixion and the redemption story. The title of my message this evening is The Story of Redemption. And maybe I'll just read um, a quote by Bob Surge. It says it this way, The passion of Christ is an epic drama. The betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the scourging, the crucifixion, the death, the descent to hell, the resurrection, the ascension to heaven. The whole story is one seamless swing at sin, sickness, and death. Now, in case you're too concerned that I'm going to do what the Amish do, and I would enjoy doing one of those services, as long as I'm not the one that has to preach, um, where they go from the beginning of the Bible to the end and tell the story of redemption. I'm not going to do that this morning or this evening, but I do want to tell a little bit of the story of redemption, um, and maybe I want to do what... I was taught to do in literature class many years back, and just look at the parts of a story. Um, And I think there are five parts of the story called the setting, the plot, the characters, the conflict, and the theme. And just take a look at the redemption story maybe in that way. The story of the cross and the weeks leading up to the crucifixion is an epic drama. And I was reading um, the last week or two, just reading all the gospels of the story of the crucifixion, And you start reading that, there is a lot to it. And there's a lot there that that you wonder, why did God do it that way? You know, why did Peter take the sword and cut off um, Caiaphas' servant's or the high priest's servant's ear? Why did um, there have to be two thieves on the cross? Many, many, many details that are just hard to grasp. But why did God do it that way? But its story is meant for a reason and meant for us to read, meant for us to understand, meant for us to, um, to get excited about. Every chapter in the Bible leads and points in time to this dramatic moment in, in, this dramatic moment in the world. It is the redemption story, the story that should make all the difference in our lives. There's so much that took place before the cross and so much that took place at the cross that we'll never capture in one night this story or in one week, or in our lifetime. But I think that should be our response as Christians. We should be reading the story. We should be trying to understand the story. We should be excited about the story. Um, It's a story of Christ and the cross. I believe the song, The Love of God, captures a little of what I'm trying to say. Um, You know this song, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win his erring child. He reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry? Nor could the scroll contain the whole that stretched from sky to sky. The story will never be completely told or covered here on earth. Um, But I do believe this evening, as we think about having communion together, we should just spend a little bit of time thinking about what Christ did did for us. So I want to start with the story. 
why the redemption story is needed. Um, like I said, I don't understand the mind of Christ, and I can't begin to comprehend why God did what he did. But the one thing I do understand is we live in a broken world. We all understand that? I think we all understand that very well. Um, something was needed. There was a problem. It was a big problem. Um, there is a problem. There's a broken problem that Christ came to redeem. I think another thing I understand, and probably understand it very well, is I am a broken person um, in dire need of redemption. I don't think that's too hard for me to understand, and hopefully not for any of us. We are in need of something bigger, of a redemption story. This story for me is for me the drama, the high stakes of death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ needs to take place, needed to take place for me. Let's take a look at the story now. Let's look at this. I'm not going to spend time on the setting, but I'm going to just go right to the plot of the story. Um, I don't know. I can begin to tell the story, but I'm just going to start with the plot of the story by going right to a word that I think is pretty important for us to understand. And maybe at 52, I'm just starting to grasp um, the word, and that word is propitiation. Um, if you listen to the song we just sang, I think in the song, it defines propitiation. What was that song? Daniel, what song number was that? 290? Um, verse 3, it says, In pity... No, I'm sorry. Verse 2. Sorry, verse 4. And he took my sins and my sorrows and made them his very own. He bore the burden of Calvary and suffered and died alone. Just a little bit of picture of what the word propitiation means. When we think of propitiation, I think most of us would probably say something like it's in the atonement for our sins. What Jesus did for us uh, as atonement for our sins. The word propitiation carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction. I think we need to understand this word. Um, it probably does a lot. I mean, the word seems big and maybe too big for us to comprehend, but I think as Christians it's important for us to comprehend that word. Specifically, appeasement towards God. Propitiation is a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of an offended person and being reconciled to him. The necessity of appeasing God is something many religions have in common. So we as Christians are um, probably the, every, I, I should say most religions, believe that God, the God needs to be appeased. It's something that many religions have in common. In ancient pagan religions, as well as many religions today, the idea is taught that man appeases God by offering various gifts of sacrifice. Is that what we need to do to appease God? I hope not. Because we'll never appease him by anything we do um, in ourselves. In Isaiah 51, it talks about the cup of wrath God had towards the Israelites' sins. Does God have that same cup of wrath stored up towards my sins? I think we know that answer. Probably is yes. Maybe a better question is, what was in that cup? Jesus did not want to drink in the garden. Let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane and look at Jesus' sufferings. If you want to turn to Luke 22:42, um, you'll see there... Where Jesus is at the garden and he is asking God to take away that cup. And what was in that cup? 
think I'm going to read those verses. But when, <clears throat> Then when Peter, later on in the evening, when Peter takes up his sword, takes a swing at the high priest's servant, Jesus tells Peter, remember what Jesus told Peter? We know the first part of that, put away your sword. But he goes on to say, shall I not drink that cup that the Father has given me? So Jesus knew he was going to drink that cup that evening. That was the part that was so hard for Jesus to accept. So what's in that cup? The cup best explains the redemption. Go to the garden where Jesus is crying out to the Father and sweating drops of blood. Let this cup pass from me. Was this cup the suffering of the Roman cross? Do you believe that Jesus was crying out and saying, I don't want to bear the cross of the Romans? Or was it something else? You see, history says there's been 50 million Christians martyred since Jesus. And a lot of those Christians went to their martyrdom singing. Willing to take on whatever was there. Wouldn't Jesus do the same? Wasn't he courageous enough to do the same, to take on the cross? Or was there something more to the cross than is in our cross? And I think we know the answer. Um, there was more to that cross. I think if we're honest, we know it is something else. Since Jesus' death, <clears throat> was his cross bigger than all the martyrs since the, since the cross? We all know it had to be, we all know there had to be something else in that cup. I read an article or answers.org. It says it this way. The Bible teaches that God himself has provided the only means through which his wrath can be appeased and sinful man can be reconciled to him. In the New Testament, the act of propitiation always refers to the work of God and not sacrifices or gifts offered by man. The reason for this is that man is totally incapable of satisfying God's justice except by spending eternity in hell. There is no service, no sacrifice or gift that man can offer that will appease the holy wrath of God and satisfy his perfect justice. The only satisfaction or, or propitiation that could be acceptable to God is that, and that could reconcile man to him, was made by God. And I'm going to read Hebrews 2.17. For this reason, he had, made, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God, that he might make atonement for the sins of of the people. That, in a nutshell, is a story of redemption. The only way for God to fix it was through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Everything throughout the Old Testament was pointing to his redemption story. Another important part of every story that I want to get into now is the characters. Um, and as we look at the characters, I'm going to look at the two characters. It might help us under, understand the word propitiation a little more. The first two main characters we know is God the Father and God the Son. And turn with me to Genesis 22 to a story of Abraham. And I know we've heard this story, read this story many times. Um, but just turn with me and let's look at the story of Abraham offering up his son Isaac. And in this story, I think we're going to see God the Father and God the Son maybe in a way we haven't seen him before. I've struggled with this story. If you're like me, have a little hard time with the story of God asking Abraham to offer up his son. In Genesis 22, God asked Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, 
and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Now, did you ever wonder why God would do that? I wonder that often. But do you think Abraham understood why he was supposed to offer up his son? Not completely. But I think Abraham knew that that offering was for who? His own sins. And when you think of that, like, wow, why, why would God do that? God told Abraham to go up to that mountain, slaughter your only son whom you love as a sacrifice. Now, if you're like me, you're cringing already as you hear that story. If you read the story in details, you'll probably keep cringing. And what does Abraham do? He goes up to the mountain. I'm not going to read it here, but you can follow it in the story here in the verses. Goes up to the mountain. Ties up his son. His son offers no resistance. It says that Abraham gets his knife, lifts it up to slaughter his son, and right before the knife goes to kill his son, the angel stopped Abraham and said, Don't lay a hand on your son. Now, it doesn't say it here, but earlier it says, I will provide. Now, if we know that story, we know God did provide. And he did what? He took his only son and placed him on the cross for our sins and provided for me, for Abraham, for all of us. And he poured that wrath that we deserve on him. Now, I know that's a hard story to tell, and it's hard to accept, and in fact, a lot of Christians throughout the world have a hard time with that story and actually push it aside and say, there's no way God would put his judgment, would do that to his son. They call that child abuse. But I think it's pretty clear, in that cup was the wrath that we deserved, and God poured it on his son, and that's the redemption story that redeemed me and you. Drinking the cup of wrath he receives for us. Isaiah 53 makes it very clear. We had that in our Sunday school lesson last Sunday. Let's just open our, look at Isaiah 53 quickly here. And I think it is clear in these verses what God did to his son. I don't think too many of the Jewish people like this chapter, but I think they understand probably maybe even better than some of us, what God needed to do for his son. We'll read verses 4 to 7. Surely he hath bore our grief and carried our sorrows, yet he did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was buried for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone on his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He, brought as a lamb, he was brought as a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. We know the story. The cup was poured on Jesus, the main character in the story. God the Father... <clears throat> um, Jesus is the main character of the story. He was the one that made all the difference for us today. He's the one that drank that cup of wrath that we were supposed to have put on us. 
He drank every drop of that wrath of God as an atonement for our sins. Every drop. I don't get any of it. So how about God the Father? We know um, what it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Think about God giving his son for you and for me. That's incredible love that I think we need to understand. It wasn't the wrath that was poured on him, but it was a love giving his son for my sins. The next character in the story I'd like to look at, and maybe we're going to look at two more characters, and you can turn with me to John 11, verses 45 to 47. And we see a group of men. I was just reading this um, last week, and I noticed something that I never noticed before. These verses are something that I'm sure many of us have read. But let's just look at um, these characters, and this, the next group of characters are the Jewish rulers. Here we find a group of people that hated Jesus, the villains of the story, the group we read about and tend to get very angry with. They're the hated ones in the story. They took the innocent Lamb of God and sacrificed Him for our sins. But why did they do that? Were they such horrible people? The Jewish leaders were legitimately worried about something. And let's look at what they were worried about. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary had... Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their way and went to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. They gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees in council and said, What do we do? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know... Nothing at all, nor consider, it that, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and for the whole nation, that, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spoke he, not of himself, but of being high priest that year. He prophesied that Jesus would die for that nation. Now look back at verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came... I'm sorry. Verse 47. Uh, verse 48, I'm sorry. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our, both our place and nation. Now, let me think about that a little bit. Doesn't, what, would we, what have we done? or what, Would you worry about our nation being taken away? Our freedoms? We are many people that are worried about our nation and our freedoms taken away. These Romans were legitimate, or these Jewish leaders were legitimately worried because Jesus, they were going to lose their nation. That wasn't a good thing. So they were willing to sacrifice one person for the good of the whole nation. That sounds reasonable enough. That one person was Jesus Christ. Um, and Caiaphas actually... Um, prophesied that he would die. Jewish people cared about the nation of Israel and were willing to do whatever it takes to save their nation. What a great cause they were fighting for. I think that sounds a little familiar. People in our nation are doing all they can. Christians in our nations are doing all they can to save our nation from evil. Sounds familiar. 
What have we been willing to, what are we willing to fight for? Or what do we fight for? Or maybe I should ask us today, what great cause do we fight for? Am I trying to justify the Jews? No. But I'm just saying, that does sound a little bit like us often, willing to fight a cause um, for the sake of something bigger. I've seen many so-called Christians willing to crucify the bride of Christ, the church, for a great political cause, but much less important than saving a nation. I should also mention there were many people in the group who came to understand and believe in Jesus. Even this group, we have um, the San- Sanhedrin, we had um, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. So even in the midst of the villains, we find men who were um, later on became saved. Next group of people I see here is the crowd and the disciples. So who was in that crowd? Let me just look at chapter 12 here, and I'm going to just go over a few verses. Look at verse 17 in chapter 12. Um, We see a little bit about this crowd. Now the crowd that was with them when they called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Um, Verse 29, we see more about the crowd The crowd that was there and heard it said, and it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. In verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the man, the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Verse 37, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. That was the crowd. Um, and then in Matthew 27, verse 20 and 22, we see the crowd said, crucify him, crucify him. This group of people may be ones we can even relate to a little more, the wishy-washy ones, the ones that one day are really going to serve Christ and the next day we're struggling. Um, I believe John understood and said it well in chapter 12. They love the praises of men better than the praises of God. That was the crowd. And I think I can maybe relate to that group a little more. Or maybe they weren't ready to take up their crosses and follow Christ. It was just too hard for the characters of the story or the crowd to follow their leader to the end. In this story, it was just too hard. Can we relate? We know the story and the outcome, and we still struggle following the same leader, Jesus Christ. So if we think that crowd was bad, they didn't even know the redemption story. How often... Have we read this story and still struggle to follow Christ like the crowd, wanting the praises of men more than the praises of God? Now, the exciting part of that story about the crowd is we have people like Joseph of Arimathea. We have Peter. We have the disciples and many of the crowd that believed and were baptized at Peter's revival. So there's hope for us wishy-washy people that sometimes really know the redemption story and still struggle. The redemption story, when they understood it, made a difference in their lives. How about us? When we understand the redemptive story, it will make a difference in our lives. And I think that's why we should study the redemption. I think that's why we should read the story more often. When we read that story, it makes a difference in our lives. The last character I want to talk about is Satan. You might be asking, what part did Satan have to play in the crucifixion? This might be the hardest character to understand. Why would he take part in bringing about redemption and helping the most wonderful story ever told? Ever think about that? Well, the answer is in 1 Corinthians 2.8, which none of the princes of the world knew, for had they known, 
they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I don't understand this completely, but I do believe Satan believed he had won when he crucified Christ. Not till Jesus descended into hell and left the captives free did Satan realize he had lost his battle. And I'm not going to go into that detail because I think there's a lot of controversy on what it meant for Jesus to descend in hell. What he did brought about a great victory. The subplot in the story may be the biggest part of the story, the battle between God and Satan. And I believe, and there's a lot of difference of opinions, and we don't know for sure what happened when Jesus descended in hell, like it says in um, Ephesians, and I don't know exactly where that hell was. But I think that may be the time where Jesus actually bruised the serpent's head. That was the time I believe maybe the time where um, Satan, where Satan was defeated. Now Satan continues to just try to defeat us the way he tried to defeat Christ. But we have a victorious, resurrected Savior that won the battle against Satan and Sid. He led by example. And that, and that leads me to what I believe is the most important part of the story, which I just want to get into a little bit this evening yet, and that's the resurrection. The story that completes the story. I believe the resurrection is essential in God's redemptive story at the cross. Um, it's probably the biggest part of the story, and I think we talk about the cross, and um, we need to talk about the cross, but the cross ends with a semicolon. The period only comes after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. I guess I should probably say the period comes after Christ's second coming. The cross without the resurrection makes what God did to Jesus on the cross seem terrible and unnecessary. But because of the resurrection, God exalted Jesus above every name, and that every knee shall bow to Jesus, and every tongue will someday confess him, and he is now at the right hand of the Father advocating for us. At the cross, Jesus was willing to die for our sins, but at the resurrection, Jesus was exalted above every name, and deservedly so. But the resurrection is also important in our personal story. I don't know if you've thought about that. Um, I was reading a little bit of Bob Serge's story on the cross, and he talked about the resurrection is also for me personally. God has destined for us to share in Christ's cross. We know that, right? We all understand there's many verses in the Bible that talk about the cross of Christ. We are to share in that. Romans 6, 5 says, um, let me just read this. But I think along with sharing in Christ's cross, we are also should be able to share in Christ's resurrection. Romans 6, verse 5, says it this way. For if we have been planted together in his likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So what does that mean? How can we be in the likeness of Christ's resurrection? Without the resurrection, our story becomes incomplete. Whenever there is a cross in Christ, there's always a resurrection. Your cross or your suffering in this in the story people is this your cross or your suffering is probably the story people remember about you. But your victory or your resurrection or your overcoming is your finished story. It validates your suffering. And you know many people, I think most of you know stories of people who've suffered here in this church, probably, or maybe in a past generation. And you know the story of the suffering, but without the story of them overcoming their suffering, you probably wouldn't know the story. The story probably wouldn't be repeated. 
That's the resurrection part of the story. And that's how it is in our story. Our trials are what people remember about us. But our victory is our struggle, and our struggle is what gives us and others' ability to tell our story. It's the power behind our story. Jesus' resurrection validates the cross, and it proves that Jesus is Lord of Lords. Isn't that exciting? The resurrection completes the connection. The resurrection makes available to us everything Jesus did for us on the cross. It completes what was started. I love, first Corinthians, I love the verse there in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. The implication of the statement is huge. At the cross, the price was paid, but Jesus had to rise... Jesus had, if Jesus had not risen, nothing that was purchased would be ours. Although paid for, the benefits would be lost. Think about that. The resurrection was like a major circuit breaker. When Jesus rose from the dead, the breaker was turned on, and all the lights came on, and the power of the gospel suddenly connected to us. Christ's resurrection is an example for us. He wants us to duplicate it in our lives he wants us to take up our cross, but he also wants us to find victory in our struggles. Just like Jesus' resurrection released the power for all of us to be saved, our own victories release the power in our lives and in our story. When you're in a fiery trial and you're laboring to win the fight on, of your cross, like Jesus did on the cross, we can remember that Jesus had victory and we can also. If you're laboring for all the many things you labor for on the cross and you never find victory, it becomes ineffective. Your trials never help others in the body of Christ. You see, our victory in our battles or our resurrection is so important when we bear up our cross. God's looking to raise us up also. He never leaves us at the cross. He never leaves us in the tomb. He is looking to raise us up. Does that make sense? For our stories to be complete, we must find victory. We must find resurrection from the pit. Your resurrection is essential. I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, the same way. <clears throat> the same way in our lives, if we are given trials, we have never resurrected from these trials. Our trials become futile. And those who hear our story will dismiss and forget it. You see, our cross is never meant to be our last chapter. So you raise up in victory from your trials, your story is not complete. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 says this, If the dead raise not, then, then is not Christ raised. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. The idea of firstfruits here is to become the first of many. If Jesus did it, so can we. If Jesus for the cross, so can we. If Jesus was resurrected and took, can take the trial, so can we. The cross and the resurrection are a template for our journey. I think the story of the resurrection and redemption needs to become our story. As Christians, we're told we hold to the story of the cross and resurrection because it's personal, and it becomes my story. At communion tonight, we're remembering what Jesus did for us, and we're making his story our personal story. I love the verse we have in the wall at Living Hope. Right behind this um, church this morning, I read it again. First Peter 1, 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God hasn't given you a cross just to endure, but he has given you the power to resurrect above your trials and your cross. He has given you the living hope through his resurrection. And this week, as if the devil tells you you don't have what it takes, remind him of God's redemptive story. Remind him of God. Remind him of what Jesus died for and remind him of the resurrection from the dead. Let's remember that tonight as we're taking part in the communion. Remember what Christ did. Remember the story and remember that Jesus Christ rose and gave us the victory. Let's kneel together for prayer.